0: Today we are continuing in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter and chapter 11. Now, I remember watching a reality TV program, and I've never told this story before, but it's something that's stuck in my brain. You know how you have like a memory that's just burnt in there? And I remember, I was at a friend's house, and we, we, we were sort of watching them every weekend, and the show was about a, a three Michelin-starred chef, so a really high-quality chef, coming into a small, failing bi- restaurant business and like turning it around, and it, it was a show over many weeks. And uh, what happened is that the owner of the restaurant was a really stubborn guy. Obviously, at some point, he'd invited them in. This restaurant, this uh, this amazing chef, and the the the, the uh, filmy film. Documentary, filming, people, crew, the crew. He divide them in, but, but clearly wasn't, wasn't happy with it. And he really struggled, and he was very argumentative, very stubborn. He was totally rejected. Every one of these chefs, brilliant ideas, ideas that had made him a world-famous millionaire chef. His ideas. So, so over like the course of seven or eight episodes or whatever, I probably only watched three, to be fair, you, you just really disliked this guy. Like, he was just really stubborn and, oh, uh, yeah, immature, argumentative, and you're like, oh, this guy really needs to grow up and, like, learn to hand it over. Anyway, there was this one episode where there was this big argument, and he storms out of the, out of the building, out into his car, and he drives off, and then I was like, no there was a little fish on the back of his car. And in England, I don't know what it's like. I've never seen him here. In England, the little fish is the symbol. This, the, the owner, the driver is a Christian. Do you, know the, do you know the little fish symbol? If you Okay, I should have maybe put a slide up. And I remember thinking, and I was young. I was really young. I think I'd only just become a Christian. It's like, no, this guy's a Christian. Oh, what a bad witness. And I remember feeling it. And I should be clear, it's possible it wasn't his car. It's possible that they really edited it badly and they edited it in such a way to make him look way more awful than he really was. And it's possible that he was just having a bad day and, or many bad days in consecutive order over and over again. It's, it's possible all of these things were true. But what it made me realize as a young Christian that my life uh, was on display and that I was a witness of some kind, whether I liked it or not. And um, that's, it's not to say that we're, uh, we're going to be perfect, that we, we have to live in a certain way, and if you don't, you know, oh, it's, it's a disaster. No, no, of course not. We're works in progress, we're, we're struggling with all sorts of things, we're on a journey and a trajectory, but it's worth knowing and thinking about the fact that people see and observe our lives. And that's the situation that Paul writes into Corinth, he's writing to a church that's inconsistent in how they live out what they say they believe. An outsider could look in and say, whoa, there's a, there's a mismatch between what you say and what I see. And so Paul is writing into that situation in Corinth. And we've seen, actually, the letter itself is, is, can be broken up into five parts. Um, The Bible Project, if you've ever seen this resource on YouTube, is really helpful in its breakdown of Corinthians. Um, i kind of got the overall picture up for you. Um, And you can see how Paul's letter can be broken down as he looks at five distinct issues where the church is kind of acting in a way that seems contrary to the belief, the, the Christian doctrines, that Paul has taught them. Remember, he spent two and a half years with this church, teaching them, week in, week out, uh, the truth of the gospel, the reality of what it means to live as a Christian, what new life looks like. You've been given new life, now live with a new life in at your heart. And that's what Paul's been doing. And, and so he's tackled these issues as he's received complaints, as he's received problems, and words come back to him. Things are going on. He's write this. He's written this letter to address these issues. So he started with division generally. And then he looked at the sexual ethic, the Christian sexual ethic, and talked about how the church itself, all these problems were happening. And uh, so he's trying to say, you know, your actions don't match what you believe living inconsistently. And then he's looked at um, uh, food and how food uh, sacrificed to idols and what that means to Christians, how they should handle that and what they should do as well when someone else's conscience tells them to do one thing and your conscience says another thing and what to do in that tricky scenario. None of what Paul said has been very black and white. In, in, it's been very humble and very uh, pastoral and very careful, but he's been teaching into it. And then as we, join, as we move into chapter 11, we start a new section, and it's about the gathering. How do the gathered church act and behave when we meet together? And so that's the focus now of the next um, three-ish chapters. And then he finishes thinking about the resurrection, some concluder, conclusion remarks, and that's the letter. Now, so as Paul's been going through, talking about these issues, there's been um, a lot of emphasis on kind of living out consistently the, the, the message that he's taught them, the, the truth of the gospel, and living that out in the Christian life. And as we get to chapter 11, the Uh, as I said, that he moves into talking about the gathering and he starts with these first verses up to verse 15 from verse two to verse 15 of chapter 11. He starts uh, with talking about men and women in the gathered church. And so this is of course an issue that we need to talk very carefully and sensitively about. Um, It's a big issue and an important one for us. And so as we look at these verses, I'm aware of many things that make it difficult for us to read them, makes it difficult for us to understand them. These verses that we're going to read are easily amongst the the most complicated and the most debated verses of the Bible that I've ever read. And all the people that I've read talking about it have said the same thing. Uh, And so um, we're we're really wading into some tricky Bible sort of understanding stuff. And we're also wading into some tricky, culturally sensitive topics. And that's kind of the hardest place to be, really. It's both difficult in the text and it's difficult in our culture. But I want to say a few things to begin uh, about... um, kind of to help us, to help us kind of guide the way. Firstly, that gender equality is a huge and important issue. It's... uh, it's the inequality between genders that is the uh, a huge factor for uh, suppression, abuse, and even the death of women all around the world. And in fact, in many places, women continue to be second-class citizens. And the church should be at the front line of standing up for the equal rights of of all people, women included. So that's that's to, to say that. And even in a, in a celebrated egalitarian country like Sweden, um, we see the shadow of uh, patriarchy, misogyny, um, is everywhere in inequality and uh, uh, kind of male violence and discrimination. It's, it's never far away from us. And so, the church should be, and I think it believe it can be, because I believe that the, the idea, in fact, of equal rights is a Christian value. It finds its foundation and bedrock in "created in the image of God." That's the foundation for equal rights. That I don't Feel free to come and speak to me afterwards if you think there's a, a more stronger understanding of why anyone should be equal other than God says, hey, I created you equal. Because that's what the Bible says. So at the forefront of Christian, when we're talking about this stuff, when we're talking about gender, we're talking about race, we're talking about any subject that could be a source of division for humans, we come in and say, all humans are created in the image of God. Sadly, I believe the church in mistranslating and also misapplying verses like the ones we're going to get onto today hasn't always been um, quick to stand up for gender equality. I think that's an understatement. These verses, so okay, that's a, it's, it's culturally sensitive and it's, and it's personally sensitive. I grew up uh, in a household of strong women, uh, two older sisters and my mum. Is a force to be reckoned with. Um, so it's, you know, it's personal, and I think it should be. Um, this is also an opportunity for unity and a huge potential for division versus like the ones we're going to look at today. There'll be people in the room that come from different traditions. I've had a few conversations with a few different people about, hey, what's it like in your country where you're from? We're a multicultural church. We have people from all backgrounds. And the reality is that we've been taught on these verses and these topics differently. And so uh, I'm going to use words today like complementarian and egalitarian. So if you know what those words mean and you feel like you're one of those, then that's great. You're so welcome. Um, we want to be a church that unites over the gospel and over the person of Jesus and our equality as created in the image of God and not a church that, that divides itself over kind of what, what camp we're in when we're translating what are arguably tricky verses. So if we have questions, and I think we should and we will, then please do talk about them with one another. In small groups is a great place, but do so with an open mind and with an open heart to listen to one another. And we need to recognize that we bring our personal feelings what we'd like the Bible to say. We also bring our own cultural baggage, what the world around us says, and we bring with us perhaps our denominational kind of upbringing as well. Those of us that have been brought up in Christian families and homes might, might have more of that. We bring all of that with us to the Bible on every issue, but never more so is it is it crucial to identify it, to see it. And we don't throw it away. We don't say it's wrong, but we recognize it and identify it and then have an an open mind for the fact that other people have different experiences, upbringing, ways of reading these verses, and then we have the open conversation. I think that's what's missing a lot in our public discourse. It's easy to send a few fiery tweets without any consequences. It's much harder to sit down and have a conversation about what the Bible says on men and women. Let's try and be full of grace. And uh, lastly, before we actually look at the verses, I want to say, uh, and it was actually helpful, Maria brought in our time of prayer this morning, verses from Psalm 119. The word is a lamp unto my feet. The word is, is like honey on my lips. And I think for many of us, these words won't feel like that. Uh, but the truth is, God's word is good. We have to find ways to, to park our, our emotions, our interests at the door and come in with an expectation that God's going to speak life to us, that God wants to speak hope to us, that God wants to speak into our culture and our moment and our history and our experiences with words that are going to build us up, not tear us down. If anything I say this morning feels like it tears you down, please come and speak to me. So let's read Uh, Chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 2, because verse 1 is definitely from chapter 10, but we will read it later. But chapter 11, verse 2, and I'm reading in the NIV version, uh, and it's up there behind me. It says this, um, yeah, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But... I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought to cover his head. Oh, wait, sorry. just us get that right. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman comes from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, you can see why I spent so long on my introduction. I feel like I should just get the angels thing out of the way. Did anyone else like, wait, stop what? Um, No one knows what that means, as far as I can understand. It's very complicated. Best guess, Paul is saying there's a spiritual reality and they're watching and they care very deeply about what Paul's saying. What's Paul saying? Well, I think... Paul is speaking, and this is, so this is where I'm kind of landing. I want to get my cards out on the table. Then what I'm going to do, just to center us, this is how you know this is going on. A lot of tricky verses in there, and I'm going to disappoint you by not explaining any of them. What I am going... I know, uh, you're like, what? What did we come here for? What I am going to do is tell you what I kind of think. Then I'm going to tell you what three really, really um, smart, amazing Bible scholars' viewpoints have been. And sort of a general sense of three different views that you can have. And you can absolutely have them. And you can argue for them really well. Please, uh, this is just... These are three books that I've found helpful. Uh, This one is kind of... uh, soft egalitarian. So this is a, I'll tell you where this view comes in. This view is kind of like a soft complementarian. These give really balanced, thoughtful pastoral views uh, on on the whole Bible's conversation on men and women, this gender equality. And I'm going to quote from these. That's why they're out. Uh, and men and women in Christ. Really useful. I've read a lot of much more extreme books, but I think the point that I want to make is that um, clever people, much cleverer than you and I, that read the actual Bible in its original language, they struggle with these verses and they struggle to um, come down to a, like a fixed agreement, this, this disagreement. And so we need to be humble when we think I think I know what the Bible's saying here. We have to have something. And I think that there is actually a, an overarching sense of what Paul's saying that we can get. And I think it's encouraging and upbuilding and it helps teaching for us. And we'll, we'll get there. But in the details, it gets a bit murky. So, what's happening, cards on the table, what I think is Paul is speaking into a cultural context that's different to ours, for sure. And the main point seems to be this that Christians in Corinth need to avoid sending mixed messages about things like gender or sexuality or kind of in the marriage relationship. And that they can do that by being thoughtful about how they present themselves. So, now goes back to my opening kind of illustration, that Paul is concerned that the Corinthian church is sending mixed messages to each other and to the outside world. That's what he's worried about. I think that Um, is clear in these verses. But let me give you three views of how to interpret what Paul is talking about. Uh, The first view is um, sort of the complementarian view. That viewpoint is that men and women are created equally in the image of God, but with different roles and different responsibilities. And that can be uh, just in the home, just in the marriage relationship, so husbands and wives, but it can also extend to the church and, and how leadership is uh, uh, kind of expressed in church and the different things that women can and can't do in church services. And it can also extend to wider society, depending on how kind of extreme you take your complementarian view. Of course, it's a spectrum, so you can find yourself on either side. The other side is the egalitarian view, and we'll get to there. But the way that the complementarian would would see these verses is saying Paul is speaking to husbands and wives. If you've got an ESV version of the Bible, they've made that assumption for you. Because the word in Greek for men and for women is is an ambiguous word. It can be translated men or husband or wives or women and depends on the context. So the ESV translators have said, oh, context husbands and wives, that's what it's about. The NIV have said, I think it's not that context, we're going to go with men and women. So Different translations are giving you a little bit of a interpretation. That's why it's good to read different translations, because they're translating, but they're also interpreting for us. So when we read different ones and we see differences, it's often a good sign that there's some ambiguity in the text. There's plenty of that here. Um, what a, a complementarian would say is that Paul's concerned that that men and women in their marriage relationship, um, that there's a unique uh, differentiation or complementary role where, uh, of headship. They use the word headship because Paul uses the word uh, husbands are the head of the wife, it says in the ESV, for verse three. And that this is... Um, here, here's a quote, actually, from Bartlett, super... Uh, Good quote for understanding what the complementarian would say uh, on this, this passage is talking about. I'll read it from here. In fact, actually, there it is. Marriage is a relationship of equality and mutual submission. It involves a differentiation, that's a, a separating out, do, dip, making it look different, of responsibility, which goes beyond the obvious biological differences... Namely, the Christian husband is called to a particular responsibility to take the initiative in self-sacrificial love for his wife. That's a lot of words, big words there. Um, what Bartlett is saying, and he's, he's not a complementarian, so his quote here is that he's not a complementarian, but he's saying that that's at least what Paul is trying to communicate, part of what he's trying to communicate, um, that... From this and other parts of the Bible that men might have a unique role in the marriage relationship that is the similar to, uh, it, it's, it's an analogy of the role Jesus has for his church, namely dying for it. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. So what a complementarian would say isn't the case is a top-down authority, hierarchical, I'm in charge, I make the decisions, you submit to me that is not what's on the paper here. That is not what's being said. And so words like authority instantly make us think that, but that's not what's meant. What's meant is when Jesus said, here's how you be first, you be last. Here's how you lead by serving. Here's how you show that you're the, 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 the top of the kingdom, you wash feet. That's the type of leadership, the type of authority that's, in, that's being uh, called to question here, that's being, that's being expressed here. Practically, then, these verses um, would say, these. uh, Sorry, practically, then, a complementarian would say that the act of wearing a headscarf is a cultural thing um, in Paul's day and a way of showing this authority uh, relationship in the marriage. And so, perhaps we wouldn't need to do that today because it's not how our culture expresses that. Maybe uh, wedding rings is to express I'm married, for example. Or maybe we don't think that there is a way of expressing this. And actually, that's a really, a really important thing to remember. Um, Paul is speaking into a, into a mainly illiterate culture. They don't read, they don't write. We express ourselves mainly through what we write down and say when we speak and when we communicate. I just tell you what I believe and what I think. Or I might... Tweet it or like post it or blog it, or share it in, in other ways in paul 's culture and society, you didn't do that because none of those things were readily available. only a handful of men would be reading and writing at some very very uh, rich and um, privileged women, perhaps mainly people expressed themselves through how they looked and how they dressed. It was a very theatrical a very like uh, kind of physically expressive and demonstrative way of of communicating. So it's not words, it's actions. That was how you communicated. So it's kind of natural that we don't have so many symbols today in our culture for expressing um, some of the things that are in here. So the next way of understanding these verses is that this isn't about husbands and wives at all. It's about men and women. And it's actually not about kind of headship, and submission at all, but it's actually about um, expressing gender and differentiating the difference between gender roles, that men and women are created equally in the image of God, but that they reflect that image in a beautiful way differently and separately. And that what Paul is concerned with is that the distinctive uh, expressions of gender be safeguarded in the church, And so he, uh, a a quote from Steph Liston, uh, in his book he would say this, Paul's concerns about hair length seem to be linked in some way to what we might call gender clarity. Whether or not a man or a woman should have long hair or short hair seems to be rooted in the idea that men should be recognizably men and women should be recognizably women. We shouldn't present ourselves in ways that would create confusion, but clarity. In doing so, we send a message to the outside world that we're in agreement with who God made us to be. So the, the question here is, what do we believe about identity? And what do we think God believes? What does he say about identity? So we, we looked at Genesis uh, at the beginning of Last year, so this time last year, we were looking at Genesis, and one of the things we saw is that in the Genesis narrative, God creates men and women at the, uh, equally together, and that this is an expression of their equality, but that there is a different, a second narrative that comes after in Genesis 2 where Eve is formed from Adam. And of course, that's what Paul is referring to in these verses where he says... Um, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. He's referring back to Genesis 2. Instantly, those verses really jar with us because it sounds like it's, uh, and and it has been used, to prop up a hierarchical, patriarchal viewpoint. We need to remember, in the context of the day, the, the narrative about how humans were created, so Greek myth, Roman myth, all of the myths, it's way worse Men were created probably I don't know from gold and silver, and women were like an afterthought. Or like it, it's the, the I read a few of the different narratives. There, it's it, Genesis two stands in contrast to the pervading culture by saying something profoundly radical. That is, that women are created from the same stuff. They're equal in their nature to mankind. That's what. Genesis 2 is trying to tell us not that women were created second as an afterthought no, no, no but that they're created and they're from the same thing because the surrounding culture said women were actually from something different lesser the Greeks believed that if you uh, Aristotle says that men uh, if they do a really bad job in life their punishment would be to be reincarnated as a woman that was the pervading Greek view I haven't got time, I mean, I've, please come and speak to me if you want to know more. I've, there's so many examples of how the story in the Bible and the Christian narrative, when you really look at it and hold it up to the culture of the day, it's saying something so radically, so profoundly uh, contrary to the culture, it's beautiful. And it holds up women and says, these aren't second-class citizens, they're created in the image of God, they're of the same substance. Treat them with respect, treat them with dignity. In chapter 7, Paul goes at length to say that men have a responsibility to give over their bodies to their wives for sexual gratification. This was unheard of in the day. Women didn't have that right. They were just objects for men's pleasure. That's what they were in the culture Paul's writing. And he says, don't do that. That's wrong. That's against the Bible. God says, no. That's amazing and profound and challenging to that culture. And perhaps the challenge for our culture is to read the Bible with that in mind and to see those things. So the principle here, some would say, is that Paul is concerned with gender clarity. That there is a, there is a difference, and it's beautiful, um, but there is an equality there too that needs to be upheld, and in the culture we should show that. This third view is called, um, is often used by egalitarians. So that view, then the third, that middle view, sort of finds itself in the middle of the spectrum somewhere between complementarians and egalitarians. We've moved over to the other side, and I think again uh, some really compelling. Um, arguments here for saying that this isn't actually about uh, gender either, but rather is about expressing sexuality and is expressing um, a, a Christian sexual ethic within the church and making sure that there's no uh, hint of immorality. And so what they would look at, so um, for example, Andrew Bartler and, and others would say that in the culture of the, of the day, uh, there was, uh, there's evidence that men having long hair was a symbol or a sign of effeminacy, so that they uh, were, were trying to look more like women, and that this was, uh, could be a sign of homosexuality, and it could be a sign of uh, kind of like open to sexual experiences and um, promiscuity. Men were promiscuous anyway in the culture, that was, that was fine, that was totally fine. It was expected um, for men to have like extra to go visit prostitutes and stuff. That was normal and expected. Paul says it's not okay in these verses, and that's to protect women um, and to keep the marriage covenant and the marriage relationship um, honoring and uh, exclusive. Again, radical, absolutely radical, and honoring of, uh, of women, for, uh, absolutely. But the, the egalitarian would say Uh, that these verses, um, it's not actually about a covering. Those verses covering, they would retranslate that. It's all about hair. The whole thing is all about hair. And uh, women having loose hair suggested loose morals. Again, it suggested availability. And so um, Andrew Bartlett says it like this. In the context of idolatry and sexual license, that's being open to uh, sex outside of marriage and different forms of that, men's long hair and women's loose hair, seen in public, or the semi-public setting of a church service, each had s- shameful implications of sexual impropriety, sexual kind of uh, immorality, and so they would say that Paul is guarding against. He's saying, don't, don't look. You know, w- when a visitor comes in, they shouldn't think that you're up for any of that stuff. You've given, you know, you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You're not a pagan anymore. You don't go to the, to the, you know, you don't go to the temple and worship Dionysus, which again, just, you see the pots. If you see, don't Google it. Um, but uh, if you, that was what was in the culture of the day. And he's saying, don't, look different, act differently, behave differently and show that you're different. You're new now, you're different. Because now you want to follow uh, Christ. So there's three different ways to take it. What I think is core in all of those ways of, of understanding these verses is the idea that what we do when we gather matters and that how we behave when we matter gathers uh, and, what we, uh, and, and being kind of culturally sensitive uh, to, to what we might be presenting to the world. And the key there is culturally sensitive So if we went back to Paul's day, it would mean looking different. Of course it would, we'd be wearing togas for one. Um, But if it means going to another country, so I was having this conversation with um, uh, Sonia. She was telling me about how in India it's, it's just the, it's the common, it's the norm for women to wear head coverings. And actually, when you think about it, if you travel to uh, many kind of Middle Eastern countries, it's the norm just generally to kind of cover up your arms and, and to dress a bit modestly, so as not to offend people. It's cultural. So what Paul is saying is, it, it doesn't really matter what you think about being covered up. It, it does matter what it shows to other people around you. Do, do you care about them? Do you care about what people might think? And not in a in a way that like you know you don't have any freedom. Of course you have freedom, but actually what Paul says here is that um, about a woman having authority over her own head. What Paul is saying is you've got the authority to care about other people. You've got the authority. You've got the authority and the freedom to say I'm gonna co- uh, you know I'm gonna cover up if that's what is needed in my context and my culture. And that's not a new theme, actually. If you read back through on every single part of the letter where he's talked about a different issue. He said, you've got freedoms, but you also have the ability to, to put your freedoms aside for the benefit of other people. You can eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You don't have to eat the kosher laws anymore. You don't have to worry about the temple foods. But if you've got a brother or a sister who's going to struggle with you doing that, go for the vegan option if that's what you need to do to help someone else, if that's what you need to do to encourage another person, if that's what is, needs to happen to allow another person to sort of not, not feel conflict within themselves, then do it. Exercise your freedom in that way by putting it aside for the benefit of another person. That's the message here. I don't know what that looks like for us in context of, of, of gender roles, I'm not sure, and I think we would have that conversation, I, I think we, we do that fine. I don't think anyone needs to change uh, in relation to this, uh, what Paul is saying, which is good. Um, so we don't need our head coverings at all. I don't, I don't think that's what's being said here. But it is a deeper principle of putting others before us. Josh, don't worry. But, um, you, know, I don't, you know, and I don't think he's saying men can't have long hair either. I can't grow long hair. Um, about like Harry, Harry's had two haircuts in his life. He's four years old. He's literally like his hair now is two haircuts. I don't know, like, I think Josh and Nina's boys have a haircut every week. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um yeah, so some some takeaways. just let me land here. The, these verses, I, I think, strongly uh, are talking about there's an equality between men and women. Paul makes the point that oh yeah yeah, just as just as women come from men, but don't forget men come from women too, and all are one in God. It's verse eleven. He makes that point really clear to try and underline it, just in case any men think that they're getting away. Oh, you see, Paul says with a head. No 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 no, all things are one in God. And so he's making that in these verses. So I, I don't think we can say that this is. This hierarchy thing is is what's on display here. Um, As well, the other thing that I want to just say the whole point of this is that men and women both should be leading in praying and prophesying in the worship service. Somehow gone this entire time without saying. This is about prayer and prophecy. This is about you guys, us, me included, being willing and able to come and speak to God and for God, to pray to him publicly, and also to receive his words and bring them out, and of course he's gonna go on to talk more about uh, spiritual gifts and this kind of public speaking, but really clearly here he's saying saying as a given, both men and women will do this, just make sure that when you do, you're not sending mixed signals. Just make sure that when you do, when you pray, when you prophesy, you're doing so that isn't gonna cause anyone to stumble in the culture you're in, because what you've got to say matters. And Paul's saying, what you've got to say matters. Are you going to pray to God? I want everyone in the room to be able to say a hearty amen, not be like distracted by what you're wearing. If you're going to, say, if you're going to come and bring a prophetic word, I want people to be able to, to, to listen and take it and hear it, not be confused about what you might believe about certain things that they've got a real hard hang up over. That's what he's saying. So, But he is saying we should be communicating, we should be speaking. Uh, Finally, the rest of the chapter is about communion, and it's amazing, because these guys were getting it really wrong, and I think we're doing a a good job, but I wanted to say the same principle is there. What they're doing is living inconsistently to what they know uh, is taught about communion, what they know communion to be, They're living inconsistently, they're sending mixed messages. We want to be a church that... Looks hard at ourselves, thinks carefully about what what the Bible is saying, not kind of like unthinkingly, but critically, and then lives in the light of it. Okay, Uh, the first verse of the chapter says this. Follow my example, even as I follow the example of Christ. That's what Paul says at the beginning of the chapter. And it's definitely a carryover from chapter 10, because he's just said, Whatever you do in all things, give, uh, do it for the glory of God. Because that's what Paul's been doing. He's laid down his freedoms for the sake of the church. And as you read through the letter with that lens, you'll see again, time and time again, he's laid down his authority for them. He's laid down his sexuality and his, uh, you know, he's... The opportunity for a, for a wife and kids? No, no, no. He's going to be single for the gospel. He's going to lay his freedoms down for the glory of God. In food, he talks about how if if it means I eat the you know the vegan pasta, I'll do it if that's what is needed for my brothers and sisters to feel. If yeah, that's what Paul has been saying time and time again. Follow me as I vol- follow the example of Christ, and I want to end with the verse from Philippians. 2 verses 5 to 11, just so we can clearly see what the example of Christ is. In your relationships with one another, that's what we're talking about. When we meet together, when we gather together, in our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He was equal for sure, but he's not going to use it to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself like nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's our example. If we can stand, if I could ask the band to come, Uh, we're gonna gonna take communion now and uh, we're gonna sing a, a final song together. to pray for us and then uh, I'll explain how we'll do communion. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your words. Lord, we pray that where it's uh, difficult, where our, 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 our hangups are uh, strong and they act like walls before us, Lord, I pray, would you, would you break them down and would you help us to see the, the goodness of your words in all of scripture, in the whole counsel of God? Lord, we don't want to pick and choose your words. Lord, we want to be open to all that you have to say to us through your truth, because we love it, Lord, and we love how you change us into your image. Lord, we pray, would we be people after your heart and growing in in the likeness of your son? Lord, we pray, would we be more like you in how you gave yourself sacrificially for us? Lord, I pray in every way, where we can and where we're able, would we lay our lives down for the sake of others? Would we humbly submit to your word and to others, Lord, being obedient to the message of the gospel, to love others? Lord, we thank you for your body and for your blood broken for us, that we might have life, life everlasting, a life of joy, a life of hope, a life of freedom. Lord and I pray as the Church of God and I pray as a representative of the Church of God here in Gothenburg, would we be a people that that champion and fight for the equality, the freedom, education, Lord, the rights of, of all people, men, women, children, in all nations in the world. We stand up and champion those who are suppressed and oppressed. Because Lord, you came to save the the meek, the lowly, the lost. The desperate, the downtrodden—such were some of us. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and your gospel, and we pray, fashion us into. A-